You got the you got the questions, right? Yeah, I just got them. Cool. All right, what is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined once again by my dude, Brandon DeCruz. It has actually been every week for like the last four weeks. So, Brandon, just fill us in on what has been going on with you this last week, man. Man, uh, it's been great being able to catch up with you because either way, we're going to be talking to each other, whether it's on a coaching call, it's through a check-in, or it's through a podcast. So, uh, you know, this is a great medium because we get to catch up first and foremost, but then we also get to share our knowledge, our experience with, you know, your entire uh, listening audience. Um, So this week has been a great week so far, very busy uh, with client onboardings. And then also, we actually just announced, or we are going to announce, so this might be the, depending on when this this podcast goes live, um, I've been asked to come back on to the PC, which is the Physique Education Collective, to be a speaker. And we just nailed the dates today. So this is Friday, um, you know, August 12th. However, our next conference is going to be in Tampa, Florida, uh, the weekend of January 27th through 28th. And um, I'm going to be able to give you guys a little hint at who's going to be presenting. So it's, I'm going to be presenting there. Lauren Conlon's going to be presenting there. Dr. Scott Stevenson, um, Bill Campbell, we have Jason Theobald, who is one of the hosts of the conference, Jeffrey Sue, another host of the conference, Jeff Black, who's my co-host on Chasing Clarity, as well as the person that runs the PEC. And then we have a special guest that I'm working on personally getting on our board. So I'm waiting for him to finalize his dates, but it is a, a close friend of mine within this industry. So we're really looking forward to it. It's a stacked panel. Um, not announcing yet what we're going to be presenting on, but it's always a pleasure to be able to to get on stage with you know these bright minds in the industry, like-minded individuals, both in terms of a coaching capacity. And then we also have researchers. So it's really bridging that gap. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm stoked, man. That is, as you said, that is a stacked panel. That's a solid lineup. So I'll figure out to make that one. You said that's in Tampa, Tampa, Florida. It's going to be the weekend of January 27th to through the 28th. So that'll be a Saturday or Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday, we generally will get together for a gym meetup, uh, maybe go out to lunch or dinner, something of that sort. So we, uh, we plan festivities throughout the weekend. I, this will be my fourth or fifth, honestly, at this point, I presented at one previously, and then I've been to three others in the past. So this will be my second time presenting my fifth time there in general. And every year uh, we raise the standard. So I'm really looking forward to it. Oh yeah. And that's such a good lineup. I really, really enjoyed the the one I went to in January in Dallas mm-hmm. was super good. You did your presentation on energy flux, which was incredible. But within that as well, it was really cool to be around that and really have an environment that was most events like that that I've gone to are just centered around business. And it was so cool for it to actually be around, hey, here's how we actually are better coaches. Like your your presentation was great. I thought Lauren Conlon's presentation was super good and very applicable, kind of talking through like the different phases of dieting and things of that nature. So um cool, man. I'm glad to hear that. And how have things been going, man, with the transition to like out of the corporate job and just mm-hmm. coaching? How's that been going? And it's it's honestly been incredible. Um, I say it's a blessing, but I did put in almost 10 years of work to get to this point. So sometimes, you know, uh, I'll have someone catch me like, like a good friend of mine, like Jeff, who will catch me and I'll say, I'm so lucky for the opportunities that I have now, but he always reminds me, I put myself in this position. So I will say that I had, you know, I always had a large roster or a large waiting list of clientele. Um, so I was able to pull from that, but honestly, it's just been, it's been a great, it's been a great feeling first and foremost, being able to go full-time and have a full roster almost off the bat, but also the opportunity to help and work with so many other people that I would not have been able to work with just due to the time constraints. And now, Jeremiah, you're working with me personally, mm-hmm. not just on a mentorship capacity, but actually as a one-on-one client. And you you could attest for me, you know, I'm very detail-oriented. It's very 
timely in terms of my responses. And then I'm also, you know, I put a lot of effort into every single one of you guys, every one of my clients, and it takes a lot of time. So that was something that I was, I was time capped in terms of the amount of people I could take on because I, you know, quality is going to come before anything in terms of my coaching. And I've always lived and died by that. And that's what's allowed me to build my reputation within this industry. So now I'm able to reach more people. I'm not as time constrained in terms of responses, but also in terms of other opportunities. So for instance, last episode, we spoke on how I was able to contribute to the Allen Aragon Research Review. These are opportunities that I would have had to pass up just six months ago because I didn't have enough time. And always my priorities were my corporate job and you know my coaching clients. And now I'm able to take on a few other things like these seminar presentations. I'm doing some webinars that I'm going to be doing within the next few months and uh, able to work on some other projects. And then also look at this, like we used to be able to get on a podcast once a month and last couple of weeks, we've been Busting every around, single yeah. week, baby. So it's been a, a great opportunity. I'm very fortunate for the clientele that I've been able to work with. And I've also done an, an immense amount of consultation calls, which is something I honestly really like. Uh, I love getting on the line with someone, especially like coaches. And, and you know this, cause you've been mm-hmm. on the phone with me before, but I really like di- diving into the nuances. And that was something that I really, you know, last couple of years I've had to put on the back burner because if I didn't have time to take on clients, I wasn't going to be taking on consultation calls. So they were few and far between, but now I'm doing that readily uh, throughout the course of the week. And I just, I like that experience because sometimes people, you know, they ask me, you know, I do these Q and A's cause I get so many questions, but right. So some people have really nuanced questions. And what I try to get across to any audience that listens to me on a podcast is you give me generalized questions and I have to give you generalized answers because I can't get onto the nuances and the context of the individual. Whereas when I get on a consultation call with someone, they can ask me whatever questions that they want, anything that they're curious about, whether it's for themselves. A lot of people come to me with blood work analyses for their own clients. And so I'm able to dive in, but it's very specific to that person and there's more applicability. Whereas when we get on a podcast and Jeremiah, you know this very well, it's hard to give, first of all, it's hard for me because I'm very, I'm very contextual person, but we have to give generalized answers because right. we can't just, you know, focus on one subsect, nor would I, cause I don't have a niche. And so it's, you know, I'm always considering other variables and there's oftentimes I get off podcasts and I'm like, damn, I should have hit on that. But if I hit on everything that I wanted to, we'd stay on one question for the full hour. So oh, yeah. it's, it's a really great opportunity, but business has been going well, but tell me about yourself, man. How's everything going on your end? Yeah, man. Um, I'm glad to hear that, dude. I'm really so just gone so well. And it's been cool to work with you, man. Um, one thing I wanted to compliment you for is it's very cool to see a lot of people talk about the things they do on social media and on podcasts, how in-depth they are, the way they coach. And it's not really like that when you work with them. <laughs> but you truly live up to everything that you say you do. And I, I just genuinely appreciate that so much. That means a lot to me. I would expect nothing less, but it's been really cool to experience that firsthand, man. And I really appreciate that. But I, I appreciate you saying that. I know you're you're not just saying that. I actually, prior to getting on this call, I was listening to one of your recent podcasts. I think it was from a week or two ago. And you said that you had really high expectations for me. And that puts a lot of pressure on me. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I feel that with all the clientele I take on, especially successful coaches like yourself. However, you said that I met your expectation or exceeded them. And I, I really do appreciate that because I have, I always say this, I want to set a standard. Uh, for both coaches as well as for my clientele, because I'm that person that invested thousands upon thousands of dollars within coaching. And oftentimes I experience something like you're referring to where someone was some way on social media or within their content or on a podcast or on a platform. And then you get to work with them in person. You're like, this is nothing like what I was expecting. And it's on us as individuals, as, as clients to have this high expectation. So we have to realize they're human beings, but there's also, here's my whole thing. 
my medium of communicating with clients is going to be one of two things. It's going to be through, you know, either a zoom call or it's going to be through email. So I need to present myself on social media and on long form platforms like a podcast, like I would with them. And so it's a direct reflection. And, and all my clients all know this. Like I, I can't, you're like, you get me on a podcast and you ask me something personal. Like I truly care. And I truly right. care about every single one of you guys. And so I would never, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of people within this industry, a lot of professionals, they almost put on a facade. They sell an image. They sell, a, you know, the type of coach they think people want. But then when you actually pay for their services, they're nothing like that. They're not detail oriented. They're giving you a cookie cutter plan. They're not responsive. You know, they're taking 24, 48, 72 hours to get back to you. And it's like, Hey man, like when you're on DM, like it hit me right back. Like it's just, there's not fluidity between who they present themselves to be and who they actually are. And that's something I refuse to do. I would rather take on less clients or defer people out. If it's not within my expertise, than to not, you know, uphold myself to the standards that I've set since day one and, and follow through with them for every single client, whether it's a high level coach like yourself, it's one of my IFBB pros that I train, you know, to get to the Olympia stage, or if it's a lifestyle client that just has the goal of being the best version of themselves, every one of you guys are getting all of it. Absolutely, man. And again, I, I really appreciate that. So it's it's been great. And I would say most of like what's been going on as of late, um, from a business perspective, things have been going well, continue to grow pretty quickly, Um, potentially talking about bringing on another coach, which is a cool and kind of That's scary thing. Man. But um, you think about when we first linked up, you had one coach under you. And now, you know, going on, you know, three or four employees under you. That's incredible, man. I'm proud of you. Thank you, dude. It means a lot. Um, it's been cool to see. Man, we appreciate you've been a big part of the growth. But and then outside of that, with the physique side of things, um, things are going pretty well, dude. As you as you are very well aware, this last week was kind of a weird week where been spot on with the meal plan, with training, with everything, but we kind of just hit a wall there where on Saturday I accidentally just went way over my step count. Uh when you hit me with like, yo, we're gonna bring your steps up to 14.5k at first, I was like, fuck, dude. I don't know how I'm going to make that happen. And so I've just been basically just much more intentional about it. Um, first thing in the morning, I'll go for a 30 minute walk. I have like my short cardio sessions and really just being super intentional about pacing during my rest periods. And that's, I've been crushing steps to the point where it's like, all right, I got to chill or I'm going to be way too far over my step goal actually. So that's been surprising. And you did, you went far and above when I got that check-in this week, I was like, wait, what? And and I'm looking at it and you hit something like 19,000 steps. And then you had these, these signs of systemic fatigue and, you know, on your check-in today, you know, you haven't had the chance to go over it. I had just sent it prior to this podcast, but I just wanted to, you know, I want to bring light to this. And I think it, you know, we have a good enough relationship. We could speak about this openly. Absolutely. A lot of times as coaches, you know, we look at things in these silos and these narrow boxes and it's like, oh, we have energy for dieting. We have energy for training and we have energy for, or, you know, um, you know, a tolerance for work. And they are all looked at in different buckets. And I don't see it as that because I've been on stage 15 times over the years. I've dieted down dozens of times for photo shoots. And so I know the crossover effect that dietary fatigue can have on training fatigue. You know, when we compound these things, dietary fatigue, training fatigue, and then the fatigue of running a business, that's a big mm -hmm. thing. Like you are a business owner as am I. And so a lot of people discard, you know, discount that they're not thinking about that when looking at their client check-ins and a big component, as you can very, very well verify of my check-in is about your lifestyle. I want to know right. about your stresses. I want to know about like your sleep quality. I want to know about your digestion. I want to know about anything that's gone on in the course of your week that, you know, you could improve upon or, you know, highlights of your week as well. So I want to focus on the positive, but I also want 
feedback that's qualitative, not just quantitative. I'm big on numbers. Don't get me wrong. I'm a data guy. However, I'm also, I really value the relationship that I build with my clients and then also getting objective feedback and subjective feedback. So I want to, I want to hear about how they feel. And this week, when you hit me with your check-in, that's why, you know, you checked in Wednesday and I told you, listen, we're going to pull back. We're going to deload on steps. We're going to pull your food up, take an additional day off of training, get more energy availability in the system. And then I want you to check in again. And that's the thing that a lot of coaches don't do. So they won't have you check in multiple times throughout the time course of a week because that puts more work on them. And my whole thing is I don't want to wait for a week to try to dissipate fatigue. I don't want to wait for a week to see if your feedback comes back more positive. I want to know as soon as possible. So I had you, you know, right then and there, do that. And then today, honestly, your photos looked better. Your feedback looked better. Your digestion was improved. There was all these feedback markers that in terms of biofeedback, as well as your biomarkers that were improved as compared to your previous check-in. And that's how we can monitor things on a more um, timely basis. Because a lot of people, you know, I even see some coaches and I've done consultations with them as well, where they only have clients check in once every two weeks. And for me, that's just too long of a time scale because yes, maybe we only see fat loss, like substantial and noticeable fat loss or muscle gain in these blocks of time. So, you know, that's kind of their reasoning, but my, uh, I guess, conjecture back to that is, but what about everything else that influences that? It's not just about the calories. It's not, you know, it's just not about the macros and calories and the compliance and adherence that your clients have to that or the sets and reps and their intensity levels and their reps and reserve and things of that sort. What about the other things that happen within those two weeks, the stresses in their lives? You know, if they're busy with their kids, if they have something come up, if they have a work last minute work trip, there's so many other variables that influence our ability to make progress that are completely you know, removed in terms of what we would look at if we were only looking at the X's and O's of macros and, you know, calories and nutrition and sets and reps in the gym. And so I try to take more of a lifestyle approach to this because the best way to ensure long-term progress and progression is to look at this as a lifestyle, a component of your lifestyle. Fitness is not your life. It is a major component of your life as well as your career. But we also, we can't just look at fitness in the silo or in this isolated variable. We have to look at everything as your entire lifestyle and how each influences one another. Absolutely, man. And I know one of the questions we got on here, do you think coaches need coaches? And I'll say from my perspective, like, well, I may have told the client to pull back. If it wasn't for you telling me like, yo, dude, you're going to pull your steps back. We're going to increase food up. And like, fuck, no, I'm not pulling back. Like, I know <laughs> I know, I'm compliant. I know in theory, I'm still losing body fat. So I'm going to keep my steps up and I am going to keep my food lower. But that's, I definitely like feedback. Biofeedback has been much better. Digestion has returned to normal. I didn't feel like it was low energy and that's again, if it was like just me giving myself feedback, I'm like, I would be like, eh, I'm just being soft. I can push through it. It's fine. But again, like when you have that outside perspective, I think that's so valuable. So yeah, I'm, I'm super happy with how things are going, man. Um, trip to Bali, unfortunately fell through, which is what we were mini cutting for. Uh, Tristan wasn't able to get his passport on time, which is a pretty big deal. And I was kind of like, I could go by myself, but at the same time, I feel like for me, a vacation without the people without like close friends or loved ones it's kind of just like takes away from it yeah and it's kind of just gonna be like at that point i'm probably just gonna resent the fact that this is throwing off my work schedule and i would rather like let's have this be like if i'm gonna because i hadn't bought my plane tickets yet because his Mm -hmm. passport was pending so i'm like if i'm gonna drop another couple grand i would rather let's just do a trip that we can like i can take katie on and so actually now me and katie and tristan and his girlfriend are planning on going to hawaii the end of october so it'll, it'll be a good time um we'll see where i'm at physique wise by then but regardless dude i feel like things are going great and i think that's about it on my end 
awesome. Yeah. You know what? This actually, although I was sad for you to, you know, get that feedback this week in terms of your trip having to be canceled, it also allows us to shift our focus. So you're going to see in your update this week that we are shifting our rate of, of, of loss because now we have more time. There isn't a time crunch because originally you set a date. Hey, listen, I'm leaving August 20th. So I knew the 19th we're done. We're going right into a diet break. And then, you know, I was giving you some time to increase flexibility, but this week I actually slowed your rate of loss by increasing calories. So you'll see the whole layout of what I did, but essentially now I can increase energy availability. And this is very in line with what we spoke about on the previous podcast, where I will slow the rate of loss throughout the course of a dieting phase, both based on the, the client's rate of progress. So their rate of loss, how lean they got, and then also their biofeedback. So this week it kind of lined up perfectly because your feedback was off. Your biofeedback was off. You were, Mm -hmm. you know, exhibiting signs of fatigue, dietary fatigue, as well as systemic fatigue that also was compounded by the fact you went a little bit all out on the steps this weekend, not by my (laughs) um, advice, but however, we have to account for that. That that's something. If we only stuck, I always say I'm not into you know, set and forget plans. This is all about monitoring and adjusting, and it's an auto regulated process based on the client's biofeedback, their lifestyle, their stresses, their response. So this allows us to put some more energy into the system, get better training sessions, be more productive. Now we can slow the rate of loss down, and there isn't this like, you know, you know, dead set timeline where we're pushing for like we were because we only had a week. You know. Right. You know, we had one week week left, so we we're gonna push. But even you know, this kind of lines up perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I'm so to push the fat loss along a little bit further because while I feel pretty lean, I feel like there's still quite a bit on the table, and I'm excited to keep that going because we can definitely take it quite a bit further than we would have been able to in a week. So I'm excited for that. But, anyways, man, let's get into these questions. First one I have: Do you think everyone should track macros to improve body composition? And it sounds like you had a follow up conversation with this guy. Um, and he was asking about tracking at some point or girl and what the benefits would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was a, a gentleman that had reached out to me and it was in regards to body composition. And he was asking, do you think I could take an intuitive approach or do you suggest, or do you uh, have all your clients track? And so we went back and forth a little bit and I said, are you saying tracking long-term or are you talking about learning the skill of tracking? Mm-hmm. And so it was more on the, the skill of tracking because right now he wants to go into uh, essentially a body recomp phase was how he, he um, described that he wanted to lose fat and obviously gain some muscle. And he has been taking an intuitive approach this entire time. So he didn't have the skill of tracking in and of itself. So I told him, listen, I'm going to cover this on the podcast, but I think it's really important to just realize that when it comes to improving our, our body composition in general, our nutrition is one of the main variables that we need to manipulate and dial in when the goal is to improve and maximize our body composition, whether that be building muscle, dropping body fat, or in this case, with this specific individual, it was recomping. So he wanted to do a bit of both. Right. And I basically see tracking as an insurance policy to help us get to our physique goals in the most efficient and effective route possible. And one of the best ways to ensure our nutrition is dialed in and is appropriate for our physique goals is to track our intake. So I think everyone, honestly, who has a physique would benefit from at least a time, you know, a period of time spent tracking macros as there's so many benefits behind tracking macros. Like for instance, there's a lot of people, you know, in our society, we aren't taught nutrition. You know, if you go to school, they're not teaching you macros and calories and things of that sort. And we have a, a big gap between what's really put out there in the social media hemisphere and in the public hemisphere and what's really, you know, 
actually adequate nutritional knowledge based on research. And so just the act of tracking will help to improve your nutritional literacy and can teach you what different foods are composed of and contain in terms of the energy content of the foods you eat. Because I find with a lot of individuals, they aren't aware, they aren't self-aware, not only of their food habits, but also the exact energy content of food. Like Jeremiah, I'm sure you can relate to this. There's been so many times I've had a client where I've asked them their favorite protein sources and they've listed peanut butter which is a piss poor protein source. Right. You know what I mean? But in their mind, they thought, you know, protein nuts equals protein, you know, or, um, you know, nut, nuts in peanut butter equals protein. And so I think this is just a great, you know, educational tool. First and foremost, it also teaches you what appropriate portion sizes look like. And that is massive in today's society. I, you know, I always give the example, especially to my female clients is when you go to a restaurant, you have to realize that this is a one size fits all approach. There isn't a 120 pound female platter and a, you know, regular size male platter. So when you get served, you think that's a portion, but generally it's a much larger portion and it's going to depend on the person. So if I have a 220 pound male, that cheeseburger and fries or that, you know, you know, steak and potato might be adequate for the amount of protein, the amount of carbohydrates that he not only needs, but he has the, the calorie budget to sustain or to take in and, and it won't impact his body composition. But in the same case, those same calories, those same macros might be, you know, an excess for one of my female clients. So we have to keep that in mind. So tracking gives you a way to look at portion sizes, see how much, you know, how many calories and what macronutrient composition they have and get a better idea so that when you are out, maybe you'll be able to pull back and say, you know what, that looks like, you know, two servings of pasta as compared to what I usually have. Mm-hmm. It also helps us see how your body responds to different macro targets and intakes. So this is big. This is one of the reasons why I have all clients track initially, because I want to see, hey, first of all, I want them to be as accurate as possible. It doesn't have to be perfect, but I want them to take in a certain amount of calories and macronutrients so that I could see how their body responds. And then I can base my adjustments objectively based off of what I see within their check-in in in terms of their their progress photos, their weight fluctuations, and then also their biofeedback from digestion to how they feel to their appetite and hunger. Um, It also, once you get you know, more educated or more skilled within it, it allows you to swap out foods within the same macro ranges. So this is going to increase food flexibility because there are times that people only go off of, they stick to six foods, you know, like the six foods that work like that old bodybuilding, you know, motto. And so they don't, they're like almost, um, it's like paralysis by analysis where they go somewhere where they can't get that food source. So they can't get, you know, cod and so they don't know where else you know what other options to go with so at least having this this literacy within tracking macronutrients allows you to say all right well generally i have 40 grams of protein at this meal and it has five grams of fat so now i'm looking for a lean protein source that hits you know within those macro ranges it gives us a more objective way of going about eating for our goals rather than just simply going by our hunger or intuition. And this is really important because first of all, our hunger and satiety can often be skewed just from the process of dieting itself. So if you're in a deficit, your hunger signaling is already thrown off. And then also we have to think about the role that our environment, our food environment in particular, food cues play within our, you know, our and how they influence what we eat and how much we eat. So just the environment that we're in can influence our passive overconsumption or just the food selection that we choose. Choosing hyperplatable foods, we see in research that when they switch people from a non-processed or a whole foods diet to a processed diet, they consume more than 500 calories more per day and gain weight over the course of that two-week study. And then 
just in general, it increases our awareness around eating behaviors and habits and can help us improve upon them. So the great thing about tracking is once you get proficient at it, it's a skill that you've honed and developed and provides lessons that you can apply to your nutritional practices and goals in the future, even if you don't track long-term. So in this person's you know, case, or even within some of my clientele, I would suggest, listen, let's dial it in. Let's really spend a phase focused on gaining the skill of macro tracking. And that's something you can carry with you for the rest of your, you know, body composition and physique related and fitness orientated uh, phases. Absolutely, man. I, I strongly agree. Um, with like, does everyone need to track macros? I, I do think there are certain cases where like, it depending on someone's background there will be individuals that come on board and it's or not that come on board but like i will hop on a call with and it's like hey this might not be the best thing for you to do at this time and that's okay but i'm going to defer you out to someone like um amelia thompson's team is someone we refer a decent amount of people to where like hey i like within this like if we do need like if this isn't the best thing for your mental health right now which i don't think is a super common thing but like scenarios there are like fringe scenarios where occasionally it's like hey with your background i don't feel comfortable pushing you to track we're not going to do so but that's very few and far between i think for most are you hitting mostly on like people with with uh disordered eating exactly exactly yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so i defer those out as well so absolutely i'm right there with you that's like i think for other coaches listening i do think that's like an important thing to do where it's not like oh no you're good with I won't always want to be very careful with that. But past that piece, like I agree. I think it's very much like very, we can relate it to financial literacy, right? Like imagine if it's almost like if you were trying to, I don't know, hit a certain savings goal, but you didn't have a budget and you also never could see like the price tags on any of the things that you bought, right? Imagine how hard that would be where it's like all of a sudden, okay, we see can see the price tag on everything that we're buying. And we also know how this fits in the constraints of our budget. I personally think it's, one of the quickest ways for people to just learn so much more about food, because so many people will start coaching who have never tracked. And it's like, Hey, I eat healthy. I eat a lot of healthy fats. Healthy fats is a very common one where it's like, yeah. So there's avocado in every meal, which oh, avocado is great. There's nothing wrong with that. And we're dousing things in olive oil. And then your snacks are like bags of almonds, right? Where it's so easy to just rack up so many calories. Not those foods are bad, but it's a very helpful thing. And on a very, to like understand the caloric content of those and how that works in your quote unquote budget. Um, And on a similar note, I really do think this, there's a weird, like people throw out there that tracking is unhealthy for your relationship with food. And I'm just trying to touch on some of the points that you didn't, because really I fully agree with everything that you said there. But like with the relationship with food, really what I found a somewhat similar to what you said, like if there's not caught at the restaurant, then I don't know what to get. Like tracking can, I think people definitely take the flexible dieting side of things too far. But I also think for a lot of people, like tracking and understanding, like there isn't anything that's necessarily off limits for the basis of like this food is good or bad, but just Mm -hmm. understanding like, Hey, I can make this work within the context of my calorie budget for the day. That's a very empowering people thing for a lot of people, because it removes a lot of fear around all these specific foods that before it's like, fuck, if I drink wine or whatever it may be, I get fat. Right. And again, like we definitely don't take just like a Hey, whatever fits your macros is a great approach, but there is a lot of power. And like, from a mental perspective, that's so beneficial for so many people to just see, like, knowing oh. you had the knowledge to navigate, right. these, you know, obstacles and being able to swap things out and employ flexibility. I, I agree hundred percent. I always say my, you know, my clients, you know, I'm really big on education because education empowers a client and also leads them to be more compliant and adherent, you know, to the plan. 
because they have these skills. I didn't just, you know, uh, give them one tool set and, and tell them, you know, go off and, and make sure that you, uh, you just employ that hammer and everything's Absolutely. a nail. Absolutely. I don't think I have anything else to add on that front. So next up we have, why do you think some research shows really high volume to be better for hypertrophy? And then others show that more moderate volumes are better for hypertrophy. Like a brief crack at this. I really don't have too much as more. I would defer this one to you, but basically I would say first, we need to consider the individual response, right? It is going to be something that's going to be different for everyone. And that's why, like, again, it's basically just going to be looking at the averages, like, right. We're very much research is going to be showing us essentially the averages, but there's going to be outliers on either side of that. Right. So there's going to be a massive difference between individuals. Um, it can also be like the potential length of the study, right. When we're looking at like doing, 30 to 40 sets per week of a movement, right? It's like, again, like maybe in the context of 12 weeks, I did just show, and I don't actually remember the time frame for the studies specifically, but within that, like maybe in the context of that tour time frame, it did show superior results. But if we're looking at six months, if we're looking at 12 months, like there's there's a lot of variability there. There's going to be a lot of inter-individual variability as well. Um, that's really all I had to add on that. Take it away. All right. So I, I love where you started with this, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to go more into the rabbit hole of the research. Cause I know this individual in particular, we've went back and forth on these type of topics. And um, so I want to hit on the fact that we have a lot of research that shows that hypertrophy outcomes are optimized anywhere between 10 to 20 sets per muscle per week, which is generally the range that we'll see within the meta-analysis. So we see in the Schoenfeld meta-analysis, and then also there was just one recently where they showed that 10 to 20 uh, sets per week being like the optimal zone for hypertrophy. But then we do have a few you know, outliers, which are just individual studies like the Schoenfeld high volume study that show that between 30 and 45 sets per body part per week are better for hypertrophy. And I think there's a, a few aspects of hypertrophy research that many overlook. And, and Jeremiah knows this. I'm really big into not only re- reading the research, you know, I'm not an abstract warrior. I'm not just looking at those things. Like I'm really diving into the methods. I'm diving into the findings and I'm really trying to look into the context of the paper and how it applies. I'm always trying to get what's called external validity, which is also referred to as ecological validity. And what that means is how does the results of these find, or how do these findings apply to those that I'm working with? Because honestly, as a coach, like I love research, don't get me wrong, but I want to apply this to get myself and my clients jacked. Like that's it. That's the reason I read all this stuff. And so, you know, many overlook the fact that when it comes to training volume, and there's there's a lot that people overlook when it comes to training volume. And I think that causes a lot of confusion around the topic. And we also have a lot of people that are on either ends of the spectrum. So we have like camps that are more in that moderate or lower volume. Mm-hmm. And then we have other people that are in the higher volumes. And here's the thing, they both get results. So it's really hard, you know, if you don't have a good knowledge of the research or you don't have good experience with yourself, or you really haven't tried both approaches, you might not know what works best for you. But We have to look at some of the context behind these studies. So first and foremost, we have to look at the fact that we have far less studies that show that really high volumes like that Schoenfeld study are better for muscle growth. I mean, honestly, off the top of my head, I believe there's maybe like three or four that show that those of higher volumes led to better muscle growth. However, I think it's because these studies are like really extreme and they're shocking and they get a lot of spotlight and a lot of people will discuss them and have discussed them over the years that it makes it seem like there's a lot more of them. So oftentimes we'll always hear about that Schoenfeld study, but we don't see those same uh, results being um, you know, replicated by lab after lab after lab. 
And so it really makes it seem like this is a finding that's more, I don't want to say more important, but is more substantial than it actually is. Mm -hmm. And the other thing many fail to do is to look at the total amount of muscle growth that are elicited by both of the studies that show that, you know, the, the line of studies that show that 10 to 20 sets per muscle group is best and 30 to 45 sets um, are best. And when you really actually look at the findings, you'll see that in both cases, it's not like the 30 to 45 sets per week. Those subjects are growing more in absolute terms than in the 10 to 20 set studies. So we're seeing the same amount of growth, whether they're doing 10 to 20 sets in one line of studies, like so in, in one lab, as they are in 30 to 45 sets. And that's where we have to look at the methods. We have to look at the actual um, variables used within the study and see, all right, well, why is that? Why is it that, you know, they're saying, you know, some labs are saying 10 to 20 sets, and that was the best hypertrophy outcomes within the intervention that they used, but then they're getting the same results as someone doing, you know, as another study doing 30 to 45 sets. And so in the studies that show very high volumes being best for hypertrophy, they generally, you'll notice, they'll generally use shorter rest periods. And and that's honestly for practicality's sake. They can't have these, these kids in a research lab for like hours a day utilizing longer rest periods. But when we think about it from, you know, just a logistical spec, uh, perspective, we have to realize that if you're using shorter rest periods, you're going to have a greater amount. You're going to incur a lot more systemic fatigue. So it's going to lower the quality of each set that they're doing. So they're most likely seeing greater load and rep drop off set to set. So doing these higher total sets in those sessions essentially offsets the lowered quality quality of these sets. But then if we look at the studies that show that 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week being the best for hypertrophy, you see that they yield the same amount of muscle growth in these interventions, yet they utilize longer rest periods. And they're most likely taking these sets closer to mu true muscular failure rather than just failing because of systemic fatigue or from metabolic fatigue. So if you utilize very short rest periods and are training in a fatigue state as a result, you may have to do more total work. And we actually see that. Like, I'll tell you, when I have someone that's in a compressed time period and, you know, they're not able to rest long between sets, I'm going to have them do more sets to make up for that. Mm -hmm. But that's essentially just utilizing more quantity to make up for a lack of quality. So I think it's important that when people within our space talk about the research, they touch, touch on the context of these studies. And also, re we have to realize that research is simply a guide, not a blueprint as to how to train. So just because a few studies show that hypertrophy was best at 30 to 45 sets per week, you know, doesn't mean that that's what we should do. Like, there's very few of us who would not only have the time weekly to complete that and be consistent with it, but there's very few of us that could recover from that. So when I see these findings, like I appreciate the research, I have the utmost respect for Brad and James and everyone that was on that, that review. However, even they will say that they don't recommend doing that for long periods of time, A, because that time course of the study was about eight weeks in college trained males. So then we have to look at the stress and the lifestyle constraints of those individuals. And that doesn't fit my audience, like, or that doesn't fit my clientele because my average client is between 30 and 45 years old. They have a high stress job. They are a busy working professional. A lot of my guys are entrepreneurs or fellow coaches. Like they don't have the time a to allocate towards that. B we have to think about the recovery factor and their work capacity. So there's, there's so many nuances that get into these studies that I really encourage if you guys are into hypertrophy research or in research in general, don't just read the abstract. We see that oftentimes, Jeremiah and, and I often will, will talk on calls about the fact that someone will misinterpret the conclusions of a study or the abstract of a study to mean one thing, but they missed out on so many other variables. So they'll look at a training study and say, all right, you could do one ninth of your training volume and maintain muscle mass, 
but they didn't look at the nutritional intervention or they didn't look at the state of energy balance that those um, subjects were in. So then they apply it to a completely different state and, and they're missing the context. They're, they're misapplying that research finding to individuals that it doesn't apply to. Okay. So it almost sounds like, like with all the volume debate, at least from how you interpret things, it basically just lines up with what most people seem to have said for a very long time where, hey, if we can we can do less volume with more intensity or we can do slightly more volume. But and I mean, even within that, if it's like not necessarily, it might not it might still feel intense. But if systemic fatigue is more so the rate limiter than actual muscular fatigue, then we might have to do more volume to make up for that. Absolutely. So it, it really it really does come down to the other variables. Remember, when you influence volume, the other key variables, which are frequency and intensity, they get modulated as well. Nothing moves in isolation. These are all dials, you know. So we have to realize that if you're going to jack up volume, other things are going to come down with it. And so we can't just look at one thing in isolation and say, you know, it's just volume that is, you know, the key driver of muscle growth. Or, you know, a lot of people will say that, but not realizing it's mechanical tension. So it's a dose of that tension. If you are doing less quality sets because you're doing so much volume, you're getting less effective reps, you are lowering the mechanical tension. So to make up for the fact that you're not having as sufficient of amount of a mechanical tension per set, you're doing more sets to equate that. So we're just looking at pretty much getting to the same threshold of work being done, effective work, effective reps being completed. However, it's a different, two different roads to Rome. So both can work. It's just, let's not look at these things in isolated variables like, oh, it has to be this. It has to be 30 to 45 sets per week. Because for a lot of people, that's not only not going to fit their their constraints, their lifestyle, their schedule. It's also not going to fit their mindset because they're going to feel overwhelmed by that amount, that target per week. Absolutely, man. And I mean, even from a practical application perspective, if you just look at a client and how much the way they execute, how intensely they train, how much that changes over the course of 12 weeks, of six months, of a few years of working together, and like how much different of a result they can get from the same amount of volume. I feel like it's so, there's just so much, so many variables there that I think it would be not be wise to just take like, hey, this one study showed that in this group, it isn't necessarily even the group, like this doesn't necessarily fit my demographics. It would be unwise to just take that and like, okay, cool. Well, I'm just going to apply this across the board. Um, next up, we have thoughts on the dirty dozen. Or what are your thoughts on the dirty dozen and whether we should avoid them? You want me to cover this one? Take it away. You got it. So just a little bit of a background on the dirty dozen. Uh, the dirty dozen is essentially a list of what's considered, and I'm going to put quotations around this, what's considered the 12 dirtiest foods. But what we have to realize is that the USDA tests for pesticide residues. And these items that they have on this list are those with the highest amount of pesticide residues. However, these are still hundreds of times under the pesticide limits or they wouldn't be able to be sold. So this is really just uh, you know, a foods list. Like if you actually look in the research behind it, it's just a list of foods that have more pesticides than others, but they aren't in excess of what's considered healthy for us to consume. So for example, one of the best examples of this, and I know this because it's my favorite fruit, um, strawberries on the dirty dozen list. And oftentimes people will see me post about eating strawberries, or sometimes I'll have clients ask me these questions. And it's on the dirty dozen list. So it's considered one of the 12 quote unquote dirtiest foods. But if you look at the research and the amount of pesticides that's contained in them on average, or even if you look at the highest 
ranked or highest ever found amounts of pesticides contained on strawberries per serving in conventionally grown strawberries, you need to eat something like, dude, I think it's like 400 servings per day consistently to reach a harmful level of pesticides. So consider the fact that no one's going to be able to do that. It's completely unrealistic. It's very similar where we can contrast it, compare and contrast it to like the artificial sweetener uh, research where they put it in mice, they give a 50 times, you know, 50 or 500 times lethal dose. And then they say that they, they have these outcomes. So one of the issues with the dirty dozen list and why I don't use it and I don't believe you guys should avoid it is, you know, lists like this cause, you know, many to develop this food fear around consuming certain foods, especially fruits and vegetables. And these are already items like fruits and vegetables are already massively under consumed in our society anyway. So it makes it seem like we need to avoid conventional produce and buy organic when that in and of itself can be a barrier for many who can't afford to eat all organically. So it may just result in them consuming even less fruits and vegetables per day. So I find that to be a massive issue. So me personally, and with my own clients, I tell them not to worry about buying organic unless they can afford it and they prefer it. And oftentimes it's not that they even prefer it due to uh, like the quality or avoiding pesticides. A lot of times they just prefer due to taste. And I think it's also important to hit on the fact that we also have meta-analysis that show that organic foods are not inherently more nutritious than conventionally grown foods. And we do have a few studies that do show that in specific. Now, keep in mind, these are when they do meta-analysis, this is a study of studies. So they're talking about on the average, most conventionally grown foods, there's no difference in, in nutrient quality between organic and conventionally grown produce or foods in general. However, there are some RCTs, randomized control trials that show that in some specific foods, like a very small list, there are some organic foods that have more nutrients in them than in conventionally grown foods. But it's so small that Honestly, if you actually look at the research findings, it isn't con even considered significantly significant, uh, statistically significant. So, you know, I think that's an important thing because oftentimes we'll hear, you know, there's a lot of fear mongering within nutrition space. And so they'll say that, oh, well, first of all, it has more pesticides on it. So that's why you want to avoid conventionally grown foods and you want to go organic. Then they say there's more nutrient quality. And there's a lot of research that disproves both of those things. And another thing is um, the last aspect of that is we always hear this debate between fresh and frozen foods. And it's important to realize that just because of you know you're getting a food fresh doesn't necessarily mean that it's better than frozen especially when it comes to produce as both frozen fruit and vegetables are just as nutritious as when they're frozen as they are when they're fresh and honestly if you look into it oftentimes when they're frozen they could be even more nutritious as they hold in their nutritional content for longer so this is something that I really try to educate my own clients on. And I personally use a lot of my, a lot of my produce is honestly frozen as it not only lasts longer, it allows me not to have to go back to the store, you know, as many times. So I'm able to buy it in bulk and then, you know, it's going to hold in those micronutrients a lot better oftentimes. So for those out there that worry about these like nuanced details, a lot of times I find people, and especially because I often talk about nuanced topics, they'll come to me and ask these questions and they got it, got, they kind of get like paralysis by analysis. And I really advise you guys to not allow some of the messaging around organic foods to cause you to feel like, A, you need to buy organic as it's more healthy because it's not. And just realize that it's more important to get in fruits and vegetables in adequate quantity than to go organic and reduce your intake as a result of that, of the fact that you're on a budget. So I'd rather, you know, anyone out there to get this, you know, knowledge and realize, A, it's not better. If it's your preference and you have it within your budget, by all means, I'm not suggesting you don't do that. However, 
However, just realize it's not necessary. Fresh uh, produce is not better than frozen. Um, organic is not better than conventional. And you guys don't have to worry about it from a safety side nor nutri nutrient side. And you just go based off your preference and your budget. And that should really lower the barrier to entry because in generality, we should just be trying to eat more whole nutritious foods in general. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. It does remind me a lot of the, the artificial sweetener conversation as well. And I know like on a similar note, I was having a conversation with a client this last week who was asking me about artificial sweeteners and just like my thoughts on them. Is it something he needs to avoid? He's consuming a relatively small amount. And I was like, I think a lot of people put the cart before the four horse here was like, all right, my man. So if we look through your food logs, like I'm okay. Like we talked through the trade-offs here. We talked through the impacts on your body, but we're drinking a pretty decent amount of alcohol, like four times a week here. Right. So if we look at like from a health perspective, which of these things is going to have a bigger impact here, we have like, uh, it, as of now, it seems like it might be a net neutral versus something that like, it's okay. This is in alignment with your trade-offs, so, like working like this amount of alcohol consistently, but we do know like this is something that's going to be much more detrimental where I think a lot of times like it's kind of like stepping over dollars to pick up pennies when people get caught up in these things. Um, I pulled up a blog that I wrote about this for Mind Pump back in 2017, actually. And I have a quote from Alan Aragon, Aragorn Go. on here um, that is one way to overpay for food is by subscribing to the organic label, which often doubles the price, but is it worth it? Thus far, a substantial body of research evidence says no. Consecutive systemic reviews have recently concluded that there's no difference in nutrient quality or nutrition-related health advantages between organically and conventionally produced foodstuffs. So I, I agree. It's not, honestly, this isn't something that comes up a lot with my clients. It's really like one of the last things I want people to worry about. So I don't know if I have much else to add there. Cool, let's move on. All right. Next up, we have how much of an impact can our food choices have on our fast our fat loss results? So I would say really we can have a pretty considerable impact on our fat loss results based on food choices. Now we know like if we're looking at it from the highest level, like a muscle and strength pyramid's point of view, we know, okay, calories in, calories out is going to be one of the most important factors here, right? But a couple different perspectives there. Like one, we're looking at the actual micronutrient quality of your food. For your overall health, and as you always say, a healthy body is a responsive body, very much like your overall impact, your overall health, how well your body responds to the things that you're doing is largely going to be determined by your micronutrient availability, which is a big piece of where food quality is going to be very important. Similarly, when we're just looking at like a dietary adherence perspective, like I think it was last week we talked, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, is it okay to diet on less than 1200 calories? And we we're talking mm -hmm. to the point of, some people are just going to have to get pretty aggressive to get to the level of leanness that they want to. And the reality is like if you're eating 1500 calories, depending on your food selection, that can feel like hardly anything or it can feel like you're eating a decent amount of food, right? But the food quality, your food selection and like choosing more voluminous foods, choosing like higher quality foods typically is going to have a big impact on that. And then similarly from a body composition outcomes, like the body composition outcomes that we get. Um, from a training perspective, if you are under consuming carbohydrate, you're going to have trouble training this hard. Your recovery probably won't be in as good of a place. So at the end of the fat loss phase, you probably won't have as much muscle tissue as you could have otherwise. Very similarly, if we're under consuming protein, um, similarly, if we're looking at like the thermic effect of food perspective, both your proteins and your carbohydrates are going to burn more calories through the process of digestion, which isn't going to add up to the biggest difference, but it is going to make some difference in the overall calories that you burn across the course of the day. So really, 
And again, like this is something that I know we talked about this on the podcast before. Like when I first started coaching, it was very much like it's all about calories, right? When I first started coaching people in person, and I wish that I could go back and like redo that part of my career, like my first year of being a coach back in what 2014, because I could have done, I could have helped people so much more, but it was just like, nope, it's all about calories. It's all that matters. Hit your calories, hit your protein, food quality doesn't matter. When really it, it does make a lot more of a difference than so many people give credit for. Absolutely. You know, um, this is a conversation, and Jeremiah, you know, because you and I have had this conversation even prior to me taking you on as a client, but this is something, this is a topic I find myself speaking with new clients about every single day. Honestly, this is something that comes up so often because I am a big proponent of whole foods for many benefits. We're talking the thermic effect of feeding. Uh, even if we just look at whole foods versus processed foods, whole foods in a, in a randomized controlled trial in 2010 was shown to um, have a thermic effect of feeding. It was a whole food uh, sandwich was shown to have a thermic effect of feeding of 20% as compared to 10.7% with a processed food meal. So just then in there, you're getting double the bank for your buck. We know that micronutrients go so far, especially when it comes to just optimizing hormones, you know, even from a thyroid perspective, which is going to play a major role within your basal metabolic rate, not having things like selenium, iodine, zinc, um, tyrosine within your diet, adequate amounts of those, which I often see people come to me and I do a, an analysis of micronutrients. As soon as someone comes to me as a client, you will see a down regulation in your basal metabolic rate, which generally accounts for about 50 to 60% of the calories you burn per day. So I always tell clients, like, especially when we get on this topic, because it is about calories, don't get me wrong, but I always tell them just because it fits your macros doesn't mean you should try to fit it in. And, you know, because like a great example is just because protein bars and Pop-Tarts may fit your macros doesn't mean it's going to yield the most optimal results. So yes, you could get to your macronutrient goals for the day with those type of items, but that doesn't mean that it's going to get you to the finish line because you know it, we really have to think about the sustainability of the approach and not just in this singular one-day aspect. Like, can I do this for one day? No. Can you do this for weeks on end to get to your body composition goal and to make this a part of your lifestyle from a nutri nutrient um, quality standpoint, from a body composition standpoint from a satiety aspect. But I think it's really important to, to hit on what you did initially was the calories thing, because we know that all calories are equal in terms of their actual energetic content. But the thing is, not all sources of calories are equal. And this is something within the nutrition space. You'll often hear a lot of debate between individuals about, because a lot of people are on either side of the camp. They, they either think you should focus more on quantity or quality of our diet to improve our body composition. And personally, I've always taken an approach that's focused on both. But I will say that I feel that many focus more on the quantity of their macros mm -hmm. and their calories at the expense of the quality. So they're more focused on food quantity than they are food quality. And that's a mistake I've seen many, you know, new clients as well as other coaches make. And what's interesting is there was actually a recent study from this past year where researchers looked at how different quality diets impacted fat loss and metabolic health when calories were equated. So in this study, they took subjects and they split them either into a high quality diet group or a lower quality diet group. And both the high quality and low quality diet groups, participants were put on a calorie control diet where each of them was in a 25% cal 25 calorie deficit. So although the diets were calorie matched and used the same percentage deficit, the food quality that the diets were composed of were quite different. So off the top of my head, if ever I remember correctly, 
the high quality diet, they had a slightly higher uh, protein intake. It was like 20% of their diet compared to 16% in the low quality group. They had a slightly, you know, they had a higher fiber intake because it was more whole foods and they had a much higher amount of omega-3 fatty acids as their main fat source. So it was quality, you know, very high quality nutrients. And then the lower quality group, their diet was a little bit lower in protein, lower in fiber. Uh, they had more sugar intake for their carbohydrate intake. And then they also had more saturated fat and less unsaturated fat sources. So they had less omega-3s and more omega-6s and 9s. And so we we know that calories do really matter when it comes to weight loss. So both groups lost a decent amount of weight. But when you look at the differences between outcomes, now, mind you, they were in the same calorie deficit. So they should elicit, if it was only about calories, if it was all about energy balance, they would elicit the same amount of fat loss or the same same amount of weight loss rather. However, the high quality group lost around 18.5 pounds, while those in the lower uh, lower quality diet group lost an average of a little under 14. So it was 13 point something throughout the 12-week study. So despite the fact that both groups were put at the same 25% calorie deficit, the higher quality uh, diet group saw a greater loss in body weight and body fat, and especially within the visceral fat component. So they lost more of that metabolically unhealthy fat around the organs. And they also saw improvements in their triglycerides and total cholesterol, which was something that was not observed in the lower quality group. And that's more specifically because they had such a high saturated fat intake on the lower quality groups. So this isn't to say that if you just eat high quality foods, that you can disregard food quality as calories were still controlled in this study, but it does make the case for the added benefits you can get from paying closer attention of food quality, both for your body composition, but also for your metabolic health outcomes. So I'm always trying to reinforce the fact that we're not just eating for body composition because that's a short-sighted objective. And that's why I always say a healthy body is a responsive body. We want to make sure that your insulin sensitivity is in a good place. Your nutrient partitioning is in a, you know, in a proper place so that you can actually readily utilize the nutrients that you're taking in. So it is about going a layer deeper. It's not just about calories. Yes, that's a major component. That's one of the hierarchical components of nutrition, but we can't just stop there. We have have to look at your nutrient quality. We have to look at your micronutrient intake and we build from there. And then we can add on things to the equation and get more into the nuances as you need it. And the more advanced you get, the more nuance you're going to have to get to get results. Absolutely, man. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. How much more time do you have, dude? Uh, I got about 20 minutes. I think we can get through most of a couple more here. Um, Next up we have, should you count total carbs or just net carbs? With this, I, I, I'll just briefly touch on it. Um, really, I think this is, I don't have people fuck with like, Hey, let's just look at your net carbs. I think it can be kind of misleading from my perspective. At least I think largely it's a marketing ploy where there's going to be a difference between insoluble fiber and soluble fiber. Um, we do like within, so basically if we're looking at like net carbs versus total carbs, typically they're going to exclude like the carbs that are coming from fiber and the carbs that are coming from sugar alcohol. But to my understanding, our body is still going to absorb some of the calories that are coming from those. So I think it's pretty misleading if we're trying to like calculate, well, like, okay, do I technically calculate like this is soluble fiber? So I'm going to count it as like 2.3 calories versus per gram. It can just get so complex. Um, I really think genuinely it's mostly a marketing ploy and I'll tell clients, Hey, we're just going to track all that just from like a, a peace of mind, like a simplicity perspective as much as anything else, but also your body is going to absorb some of those calories as well. Absolutely. No, I'm in agreement with that. And it's funny because 
this was a question that I received. You know, I, I told you before we got on that I had received a lot of similar questions, but I've received this question four times in the last two weeks uh, in different variations. So I do want to touch on some of the nuances of this because I think the topic is becoming a little bit more considered, but it's also because it's becoming more and more popular due to like all these low carb pop tarts and diet products that are coming out onto the market. And also just like the uh, readily accessible protein bars and things of that sort. And I think may, many make the assumption that because a lot of these diet items contain fiber, which we can't completely digest, that they don't count towards their total carb intake. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we do, you know, from a human perspective, we do lack the enzymes to completely digest fiber, but our gut microbiome can still extract calories from this. So our gut digests these fibers and creates what's called short chain fatty acids as a result, which then can be digested and provide us with energy. However, the big thing about this is that everyone's gut microbiome differs. So the amount of calories we can extract from different sources of fiber differs between individuals, but we do still extract some calories from fiber. So that in some research, we see between one calorie per gram to even up to four calories per gram. And then on average, like 2.7. And so what we also see is that most research points to the fact that we can do what's called energy harvesting within the gut, and we can harvest an additional 100 calories per day just from fiber itself. So I always recommend that clients count total fiber and net, you know, their net carbs, um, and just look at total carbs in general, as we can't truly know how many calories each client is extracting from every fiber source they take in. So it's better to just keep it simple, honestly, and count it all. And whenever it comes to topics like this with my clients, I always try to explain to them that it's more about what we consistently do over time that matters most, especially within tracking. So it's better to just keep it simple. And if it goes in your mouth, count it. Honestly, if it has calories and it goes in your mouth, just count it. And, um, you know, as Jeremiah, you were hitting on, I, I kind of think this is more of like a marketing technique employee that's used by many companies uh, to make their products appear to be lower in carbs and lower in calories, you know, less calorically dense than they actually are. And a great example of this is, you know, I come from the supplement industry and I worked with many protein bar companies over the years. And so many of these companies take full advantage of items like sugar alcohols that can be labeled as net carbs, but this can drastically throw off the total calorie intake of these items. And a lot of times, if you were actually do the math on how many total carbs they have and then add it up, you would see that a lot of these bars and items are 50 to 100 calories, actually contain 50 to 100 calories more than on the label. And so I would rather, if you're going to consume them regularly, if you're going to consume them on a weekly basis, just count the total carbs and and play it safe so that we know, We I'd rather you overshoot your calorie estimate than to undershoot and us wonder, hey, you're consistently eating this, we haven't cut it out, and you're stalling in fat loss, and we don't know the reason why. And it's because you're under tracking certain certain items. I couldn't agree more, man. Cool. I think we killed that one. Next up, what new research have you been reading that's worth looking into? All right. So this was from yeah, this was from a mentorship client of mine. And um one of the most recent studies I I read was a recent meta-analysis actually by King et al., uh, which looked at the ergogenic effects of eating carbs pre-workout and the effect that it had on resistance training performance. And um, this was actually a meta-analysis that Dr. Eric Helms was a part of, and I got the opportunity to discuss it with him on Zoom earlier. And um, most of their findings actually reinforced a lot of what we covered a while back in our nutrient timing series. Uh, so I thought that this would be like a great uh, research topic to hit on. And in this meta-analysis, they found that eating carbohydrates prior to training or even during training um, you know, has the potential to improve volume performance in certain cases and in most cases, honestly. 
But what they really found throughout the course of the meta-analysis was that if your workouts are longer than 45 minutes, consuming carbs pre or intra-workout has a benefit. If you do a moderate to high volume of training, so more than 10 sets, uh, I don't know if it was 10 sets total or 10 sets per muscle group. Um, if you train multiple muscle groups within a session, or if you're hitting legs, um, as the more muscles we train, the more energy ex we expend. It's more of an energy costly process. So with that being said, it's going to increase the energy demand of the workouts. So with that, they saw that, you know, ingesting carbohydrates help to fuel that training more efficiently and aid in volume performance. And then also if you were training in the morning or you had went a long period of fasting, they saw that there was a huge benefit to consuming carbohydrates. And so this kind of reinforced, we actually covered this on the pre-workout podcast that we did, you know, early on, I think it was in, in the winter. And essentially what I had hit on, we went back and forth about this was what are my thoughts on fasted training? And I said, we want amino acid availability and we want glucose availability. And this meta analysis going on over all the research on the topic, looking at pre and intra workout supplementation, they found that that was highly beneficial for those that were training either, you know, when we looked at a comparative study of either training fasted upon waking or ingesting carbohydrates upon waking and then going and doing a training study. And what was interesting actually about this study, another finding within it, if you actually look like deep into the, the study findings, and luckily Eric kind of hit on this and we went back and forth about this, was in about one third of the studies they examined, the carbs were consumed between 30 and 30 minutes and I believe two hours prior to training. But in most of these studies, they were actually consumed intra workout. So they started sipping at the beginning of the workout. So if you don't have the time, say you are someone that's really time pinched, you could just start drinking your intro on the way to the gym or as soon as you start your session and you could get a better quality session as a result of that. So if you go back to our, our nutrient timing series, which I suggest you guys do if you haven't listened to it because it was a, a deep dive on the topic, you'll hear me talk about the benefits of pre-workout and intra-workout carbohydrates as an ergogenic aid, meaning that it helps improve performance. And this meta-analysis honestly reinforced a lot of what I covered in that podcast. So yes, it does serve a little bit of my self-serving bias, but at the same time, it was good because they had never done a actual, there was never a meta-analysis done on pre-workout carbohydrate ingestion or intra-workout carbohydrate ingestion and at specific impacts on resistance training performance. So there was individual studies that looked at this, but there was never a study of studies. And so a lot of the research that I pulled on was individual studies that I compiled together. And obviously also in the trenches, this is something that I've utilized my clients and myself for years. I've been a big fan of pre, you know, peri-workout nutrition, as you could very well, you know, attest to. And this was nice because it compiled all the research and it showed all the evidence and it broke it down in a really good format. And it's also with researchers that are very trustworthy and they're also bodybuilders themselves. So a lot of these guys that were actually a part of the study, especially Eric, the pro bodybuilder himself, you know, he knows what it's like to train hard to really try to optimize hypertrophy and muscle building outcomes. So it was great to not only see this published, but also to be able to get a little bit more evidence for things that I've seen in the trenches with my own clientele. Absolutely, man. And that's another, like to the question earlier, does food selection matter for fat loss and touching on like carbohydrates being important? That's just another drop in that bucket, so to speak. Um, from a research perspective, I really, as of late, have not been digging deep into the research. What I'll say is I think from a lot more conversations with you, I have really started to understand how much I didn't understand research. I've been able to see how much I didn't actually understand research. I thought I understood before, like now, if I go back and like look at like old blogs or like old posts I made that cited research, it's like, wow, I completely butchered my interpretation of that. So honestly, what I'll say is mostly from my from what we do, 
I try to hire people that are a lot smarter than me to help me better understand how to become a better coach. But I don't, at, at this point, I have found it's more beneficial for me to like double down on things like that than for me to try to like dig too deep into the research as of now. And like our entire team, like I work with you, Andrea works with Austin Stout, Julie mm-hmm. works with Jeff Sue, right? Like we are very much like who are the best people that seem to be doing it the best in the space? Okay, we want to learn from you. But as of now, like, or at least as of late, I will like personally, outside of like studies you'll bring up, I'll dig into like that we talk about. So, I mean, essentially it'll probably be a lot of like what you are into or what if like a lot of times like clients, I coach a decent amount of other coaches who are like newer in the space as well. And a lot of times they'll like bring up a study and I'll give them my thoughts on it. But past that, I, I'll say more than anything, like as of now, I'm just focused on who are the people that are so much smarter than me right now? And I feel like that's a much more efficient way for me to learn and a better place for me to devote my time versus me trying to go like filter through PubMed and try to understand like what's going on here versus Brandon, can you explain this to me? No, absolutely. No. And you know what? I was in your position a few years ago where I did not have a good enough interpretation. There's a difference it's not that we don't have a good enough interpretation, but at that time, it was hard for me to filter between what I was reading and what I was hearing. And what I mean by that, and this is a suggestion to you and to everyone else in your audience that's actually into research or who is a coach, there is a lot of misinterpretations within research. And this is something you and I off air talk about all the time. So we'll hear someone else's misinterpretation of the research, and it might be a trustworthy individual, someone that we trust, We, you know, they're verified for multiple things, but that might be not their area of expertise. And so I'm very, very hesitant to speak on things that I'm not, I'm not an expert on. And so you won't hear me touch on certain topics. I had someone ask me if I would do a gut health, um, you know, podcast. And I said, listen, I've read a ton of gut health research, but I will tell you that I've consulted what are considered quote unquote gut health experts, meaning they have a PhD in this, in the uh, field. And even they won't call themselves an expert because honestly, if we look just 10 to 20 years ago, this was a field that didn't even have the word gut microbiota. That right. wasn't microbiome wasn't even conceived as a word. And so with, with that being said, I consider myself a late adopter. And what I mean by that is when new research comes out, I don't jump on it unless I've read all the other research. So if a meta-analysis comes out a, a little bit different because it is a study of studies. So it is compiled 20, 30, 40 studies on a topic that I can individually reach. And I'm that type of person that I will dive deep. But a few years ago, you know, excuse me, three to five years ago, I was hiring everyone in the space. I was learning from mentors and I've just kind of gotten to a point where I, there's very few people. I have Alan Aragon, I have Scott Stevenson. I have a few people in my corner that I go back and forth with research on that I trust more than I trust myself. Right. But I've gotten to the point that I'm, I'm good with statistics and I'm good with analyses that I'm going through this and I'll spend my time on PubMed or on uh, you know different research uh, websites. And I will look through it myself because I trust my interpretation. But a few years ago, I was relying on other people. The only issue with that, and, and I've suggested this to you and I would always suggest this to other people, don't take what you see on social media as a gospel. Remember, we're all fallible myself included. And so a few years ago, there's stuff that I messed up on. And uh, it was people like Scott Stevenson that told me, you know, showed me the error of my ways and made me become more critical thinker. So every time that I, you know, 
speak about information or I touched on research, I always wanted to just spark an interest in people. And even in my own mentees like yourself, I want to make you a better critical thinker. I, I don't want you to take things, you know, and just take it for gospel. I want you to think, all right, well, this is that person's analysis on this. And we've talked about other specific studies and other individuals within our space who are bright individuals, but you could tell that they didn't go through the entire study. And, you know, that's not just their fault. It is an error of our industry because everyone wants a shortcut. They want to read an abstract and then get right on it. And the reason I say I'm a late adopter is there is some recent research that I'll jump on. But as you just heard me touch on, I spoke with Eric on Zoom about this study. So that's why I know the ins and outs of this study. However, if it was just a random researcher that I wasn't familiar with or a topic that I wasn't very into, you know, Perry work on nutrition is one of my, like, it's something in my wheelhouse. You know, I was in the supplement industry for 14 years. I've done presentations just on that. And so that is something that I'm very familiar with. So this is something I'm confident on reading, interpreting, and then being able to dispel the information to other people. However, if it's a topic that I'm not well-versed in, I'm not going to speak on it because a lot of times we have people within our industry that step out of their, their area of expertise and they step out of their scope of practice and people will trust them. And it's not that they're doing it purposely to mislead people, but it's just not their area. So we need to realize just like within coaching space, I'll defer certain clients out that they're not within my scope of practice, whether they have, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I had a, a, um, client that recently came to me, a potential new client that, you know, had cancer and I'm not an oncologist and I had never take training on that. So I told her, honestly, right now you're in chemotherapy. So I, I don't feel comfortable with taking that on. I think you should go see a specialist in regards to this. So I, you know, I referred her out to a few other individuals that are more into the clinical nutrition side because I'm a body composition expert. You know what I mean? Health and body composition. And so you know, I think it's really important to realize that. And when you do read research, really, you know, take the time to dive deep. And if not, find people that you trust and that are going to analyze and interpret the research and give you a really good depiction of it. It's not going to be, you know, clouded by their biases or what they want the research to say. They're going to tell you what it says. Absolutely, man. I, I couldn't agree more. And again, that's a, for me personally, I you know when I was trying to present myself as someone that dug deep into the research i just thought it was like uh, it's kind of like an ego thing and then like it's i've found it to be with where we're at right now and where my knowledge is at right now it is just a much more efficient and better use of my time to just pay someone for who is i know like getting people incredible results for their experience basically and to be able to like hey i can tr spend an hour trying to understand this study or i can spend an hour on a call with brandon and like Damn, that was so insane, so much more helpful. So definitely a few years behind and like where you're at currently in that regard. But that's with where this is we're an at. evolution. That's Absolutely. the thing. This is an evolution. The other thing is, uh, and it's not that I'm just reinforcing what you're saying about me, but I also think it's really important to not only go to people, because I'm not a researcher. I do have a research background. I, I had to do it for my previous career. I had to do a, an immense amount of research. However, and I have a high degree, but at the same time, it isn't about that. It's also about, I always say knowledge without application is useless. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people that really know the research within our field, but I could never ask them, how do I apply that to coaching? So I have to take, I have to get their interpretation of right. the research. And then I have to realize, does it fit my population? That's what I always talk about external validity. So really 
I could care less about a lot of what this research says. There's a lot of people, they'll send me research studies and they'll be like, what's your interpretation about this? And I say, it's not applicable to the people that I work with or what I do as a career. So I don't have an interest in reading into it. And it's not that I don't have general curiosity. I just have a very limited time. You know, I'm time constrained. So I need to invest into what best serves me. So if this is a study on hypertrophy or on health outcomes or glycemic variability or on fat loss or on any of those type of topics, I'm diving in. And I'm going to read it. I'm going to invest my time and I'm going to stay locked in. And then I'm going to see what did that sample population look like? What were the outcomes? What were the interventions and the methods that were used? And can I apply this to myself first to test it? And then can I utilize it with other clients and see if it works? Because like I said, uh, you know, research kind of points us in a direction, but it doesn't give us like a GPS. It doesn't tell us exactly how to use it. And that's where your coaching skills. And I will always value that. I will value my coaching skills and my intuition over what any research says. However, there's been a lot of things that I've seen work in practice, like energy flux, like increasing knee. I, they didn't even have a term for that when I first started increasing knee with people. There was no energy flux. Right. You know, that came out in 2018. And it wasn't until that research came out that I had a term for it. But I used to just increase clients' knee and their calories. And I just looked at it as a titrate. I was trying to close what's called the energy gap between the amount of calories that they were eating and the amount of calories they were expending. And so once that term came out, I was able to reinforce what I was seeing in practice, what I was seeing on a daily basis with my own real world clientele with research. But up until that time, I had utilized those techniques and that, you know, obviously I've refined things over the years, but for three years, I was really utilizing that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. even if research hadn't come out and I would never be able to quote some of the stuff that I do, it wouldn't have mattered because I saw it work in practice. Absolutely, man. Cool. Do you want to wrap it up here? You have time to answer this last one. Let's do the last one real quick. All right. Last question. Do coaches need coaches? From my experience, absolutely. I'm still nowhere close to where I want to be knowledge-wise, but I will say one thing that has separated us a lot is just our willingness to invest in other coaches where it's very much like you can, I think you can collapse time so much if you are willing to pay someone else for their experiences to learn from what they do well. Like I've had the blessing to be able to work with a lot of amazing coaches and mentors and it has helped us so much right and uh, we've that's kind of been the theme of this entire podcast honestly i know i've talked a lot about like my experience with you and everything i've learned from you so far but man i can't imagine where i would be right now if i hadn't started investing years and years and it's not just about the investing like from also practicing what i preach like i can't imagine me trying to convince someone else to invest in something that I had never personally invested in. That's that's an entirely somewhat of a different topic, but even like that in itself, it's like if you don't see the value in it, like how do you expect anyone else to see the value in you? But also like from being a better coach, um, from the business development perspective, like that has just been such a massive part of our growth where I think like again, I'm nowhere close to where I want to be, but we're constantly working to get better. But I I think it would take us another 25 years to get to the point where we're at right now. If we hadn't been willing to invest in people, right? And I think like if you truly want to have a large impact on your clients and on the industry, I think that you as a coach need to be investing in people who have more experience, who have more knowledge and you can and can help you constantly evolve because that's by far I think the quickest way to just grow and get better. Absolutely. And I've always told you both from a coaching perspective, as well as a mentorship perspective, I've invested more money than anyone I know into this, but it's yielded returns because if I haven't learned um, through that process, I've learned what not to do. So if I, I haven't had a great coaching experience, like we hit on the beginning of this podcast, there've been certain individuals that were coaches that I really held in high esteem and that disappointed me. And that sucks. However, I learned what not to do with my clients. I learned 
what things to avoid, what mistakes and, and what feelings I never want my clients to feel. So it helped me grow from a personality perspective and approach perspective for my own business. But also from an investment perspective, I always say, if you truly believe in coaching as a career and as uh, um, an industry, you will invest in it yourself because how can you expect your clients to invest in you? When you're not willing to invest in your own progression, your own evolution. So it's really big to lead from the front. You know that I'm a big proponent of not only putting the daily practices in place where I'm I'm doing what I would ask you to do or any of my other clients to do, or I've already done what I'm asking, you know, contest prep clients and things of that sort to do. But also from an investment perspective, I invest in myself every single month. I have things that I invest in, whether it's mentorships or consultation calls or coaching myself. And so I think that even the best coaches need coaches and especially during a diet. So when Jeremiah's cage, he's dieting right now, you know, it's, you know, at some point it almost becomes impossible to be objective with ourselves in any capacity of life. And especially within like the context of our body composition and the, the lack of objectivity is what often leads to poor decision-making. And so like if we were to just frame it like in Jeremiah's case in the context of a diet, because I know that I outsource, you know, myself and I do, you know, exterior check-ins with one of my mentors when I'm in a deep in a dieting phase, because I lose objectivity and I, you know, and here's the thing, me as a coach, I love coaching myself because I've coached myself through preps. And honestly, I probably do it in the least subjective way possible. Like I cut off my head in my photos, I send myself a formal check-in through email using a check-in form. So it's very formal and it's almost like I'm looking at one of my clients' check-ins. However, even then it's really hard to separate. I always say we cannot separate psychology from physiology. So sometimes you're psychologically burdened with stress and other issues within your life. And that impacts your ability to really optimize your physiology. Or like you were mentioning earlier, you wouldn't have pulled back although you were feeling fatigued. Like that's a perfect example. So especially within the context of a, a dieting phase, you know, the bands of a diet can negatively influence our ability to make decisions. And I always try to frame this when I speak with, because I, I do mentor a lot of other coaches and I get on consultation calls with them. And when I encourage them to invest, whether it be in myself or in another coach, it doesn't matter who it is. I just say for them to invest in themselves. I always try to give them the analogy, like a surgeon wouldn't operate on themselves or their family members. So it's the same thing as a coach shouldn't coach themselves, you know, and we have to realize, and we really have to get this across as an industry, because I think it's really undervalued. Coaching isn't just about knowledge. You know, it's also about application and it's about the skill and you could know everything about nutrition and exercise science and physiology and biomechanics and still lack the ability to properly apply those lessons to yourself because there is emotions. There's nothing, there's no one you're going to be mo more emotionally attached and tied to than yourself. So it's going to cloud your ability to make clear and objective decisions regarding what you need to do versus what you want to do. And that's a massive difference. And I always say within coaching, I'm trying to give a client what they want and get them to where they want to be, but I also have to give them what they need. So if they need to be pulled back, we need to take a step back. We need to do a deload. We need to do a diet break. These are things that they might not want for themselves because they think it's a stalling of progression or they're, they're physically taking a step back, but really it's a step to the side to allow them to have a leap frog forward in the future. And that's something that many of them wouldn't have done for themselves. I get many clients, especially 
within the, the dieting phases and within fat loss phases that they would have just you know crashed themselves. They would have just pushed as hard as possible, ignored a lot of their their warning signs, not paid attention to biofeedback. And these are things I help them avoid not only within the dieting phase itself, but learn from in the process after. And so I really think that you know every coach could really benefit from having a coach themselves. You know, and you're going to learn even if it's you know just to you know, mentally divorce yourself from your own process and kind of offload. Cause I know that helps myself. It takes another programming variable off my shoulders. It's also learning from someone else's techniques, learning how they communicate, whether it's learning their programming style, learning their check-in style, or learning even their communication skills. These are all things that help us model. Remember, a lot of what we do in society is we're learning from other individuals. So we're learning from leaders within our space. But the best way to do so is to create a personal relationship with that person and see how they really operate. Because like Jeremiah hit on earlier, and I did as well, there's a lot of people in the space that present themselves one way, but they actually operate within their business completely opposite. So you might think that they're going to be a certain standard of a coach and you might expect that of them. However, they don't actually execute within that or on that. And so what you learn from that is, Hey, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to make myself look like a certain type of coach or a certain quality and then not display that and disappoint other people that come to me. So that's a big consideration myself because I've had a lot of high level coaches, especially when I was you know, competing in bodybuilding. And so I had a certain expectation going into it and they highly disappointed me. And I would never speak publicly down on them. However, I realized, listen, I had really high expectations of them. I will never do that to a client. I will never disappoint someone. I will never leave someone waiting more than, you know, you know my, my policy is 24 hours, but my average time is seven hours or less for responses for, for full check-ins. And that's even different when it comes to emails, because I'm right back on top of people. So, you know, it's just a different type of, um, experience. And also I've taken a different approach to coaching in business because of the lessons I've learned from hiring other coaches. I couldn't agree more, man. I have that exact same thing where honestly, I, every time I bring on a new client, there's just like so much anxiety where like, fuck, I don't want to, because I've been in the, your exact shoes there. And it's like, I am so, I'm going to work so hard to make sure that doesn't happen because that's like my biggest fear is someone leaving and like, man, that wasn't as good as I expected it to be, right? So I can relate fully there. Um, so 100% coaches need coaches. I know you have to run here pretty quick, dude. So we'll wrap this up. Um, per usual, tell everyone where they can find you. Absolutely. Guys, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore or on my email at uh, or uh, bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. Dope. And we will catch you all next time.